Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. We're in uh, Revelation chapter 9. And uh, if you're familiar with Revelation, there's a lot of symbolism and there's a lot of things that happen uh, in the middle of the book, per se, close to the middle, are seven trumpets. And we're on trumpet number six. We're going to deal with uh, trumpet number six tonight, and then we'll deal with the rest uh, as we move forward. Uh, so tonight's uh, lesson is about the sixth trumpet. Uh, I found a uh, wonderful quote the other day, C.S. Lewis, uh, Devin. I haven't had a chance to read him, but boy, I've got quotes from him. And uh, one C.S. Lewis quote is, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Now, that's a good quote, so let me read it again. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. So let me just say it this way. God really does speak through the various experiences of life. And I think sometimes He uses pain to get our attention. Okay? And it definitely, usually it does get our attention. Um, When it comes to change, uh, someone has said that some people have to see the light Others have to feel the heat. And so uh, when it comes to pain, pain, you're definitely feeling the heat. And I want you to keep that, this, this, this quote of C.S. Lewis, I want you to keep it in mind as we read what transpires when the sixth trumpet in Revelation is blown. Uh, at first, as I read it, you'll go, I don't see where you're going. But when you get to the end of the passage, you'll go, oh, yeah, so that's where you're going. So... There's your spoiler alert. Now, um, a commentator, one of the commentators I'm using has a quote here, uh, Dennis Johnson, to help us kind of understand what we've covered and where we are right now in the scheme of of this. Um, So there's seven trumpets. Five of them have been blown. This is number six. And he says, The trumpet judgments have escalated from one-third destruction of land, sea, and rivers with some human death and sky to mental and spiritual torture of unbelievers. And now we see a slaughter of a third of the human population. So just let that sink in for just a minute. Tonight as we read Revelation 9 verses 13 through 21, I want us to examine four things about the events of the sixth trumpet. Uh, If you're writing an outline, I'll give them to you. One is the golden altar. Uh, Two is the four angels. Three is the mounted troops. And four is the response to unbelievers, which is that number four point. That's where my C.S. Lewis quote comes in, okay? So just spoiler alert there. So let's look at that. Uh, Beginning in Revelation 9, verses 13 and 14, uh, John is writing this for us to to read now. He says, The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. 
Now we'll stop there. As uh, Beale, another commentator, says, mention of the golden altar draws us back to the cry for God's justice. Okay? The cry for God's justice from His people. Uh, go back to Revelation 6 for just a moment. Revelation 6, verse 9 and 10. I want to cite what Bill is referring to. Um, in uh, Revelation chapter 6, if you'll go to uh, verse 9, uh, before we had the seven trumpets, we had the seven seals. Okay, And when the fifth seal on the scroll is broken or open, there in Revelation 6, 9, John says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, there's the altar, the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given, they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Now, these are martyred souls for Christ, and they are at the altar, and they're crying out to God, how much longer, God? How much longer? And now, here in the sixth trumpet, here is an angel, and he's there by the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Note the symbolism. Uh, connect the dots. So, mention of the golden altar draws us back to the cry to God for justice from the glorified saints below the same altar. And it also connects the sixth trumpet, the sixth trumpet, with the transitional segment of chapter 8, verse 3 through 5. Now, let's go there for a minute. Again, what I'm trying to do here is help you connect some dots. If you go back to Revelation chapter 8, after the seventh seal, okay, the last seal was broken on the scroll. And there in Revelation 8, verse 3, an, uh, another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. Now we know where the golden altar is. It's in front of the throne. And who's on the throne? God is. So this is close in proximity to Him. It's also close to His heart. And then it says there in uh, Revelation 8, 4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. And the angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Again, connect the dots, okay? When you read that passage there in Revelation 8, 3 through 5, you see that things began to happen on earth in response to God's people's prayers, okay? And uh, it starts that, there at the altar. And then you see the power of God's uh, prayers answered, uh, that he, he, he answers his, uh, his people's prayers. So that's what I want you to see. And that's what we're seeing now, I believe. The symbolism has already been introduced 
as I just read from Revelation 6 and Revelation 8, and now here we are in Revelation 9, this sixth angel blows his trumpet, and he's right there at the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. Okay? And so it kind of links by association that what's about to happen is in response to people's prayers, to God's people's prayers. Um, with that said, uh, Michael Wilcox says, Trumpet 6, like the rest, is sounding the warning of God's wrath against sin in reply to the prayers of His people that evil should not go unpunished and that justice should be done. I don't know about you, that reads like the newspaper, don't it? How many people right now are looking around in our country and in our world and going, what about justice? You know, what, what happened to right and wrong? You know, what, what happened to that? Um, <clears throat> is evil going to be punished? Is justice going to be carried out? Can I tell you there is a God in heaven? And someday, one day, uh, He will make everything right. And so here the trumpets, as a, as a series, the, the seven trumpets, they are sounding the alarm, warning about God's wrath against sin and how He will judge it in reply to the prayers of His people. No wonder we are called to pray that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven and that hallowed or holy would be His name. Well, that is the uh, first point, the golden altar. That's where this starts. The next part of the scene is the four angels. I found this interesting. Notice that you've got four horns of the golden altar there in verse 13. And then in verse 14, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. And then in verse 15, so the four angels who were prepared, now watch this, for the hour, day, month, and year. Four units of time. Okay, so you got these four, um, you got these four horns of the golden altar. You have four angels, and now you have four units of, of time. The hour, the day, the month, and the year. And it says that these uh, four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. Wow. What gets your attention, don't it? Um, what's going on here? Well, this is where I have to depend on people much smarter than me. Um, one book I've been using, Michael Kukendall, um, he, he has a great book where he takes all of the images and, uh, and um, references in Revelation that are linked to other parts of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, and he studied that for years, and he's put together some good stuff. He says a group of four angels is mentioned twice in Revelation, once referring to good angels and once to evil angels, but in both instances, drawing attention to the worldwide effects of events that involve these angels. The first interlude there in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, it says, after this, in Revelation 7, verse 1, after this I saw four angels 
standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Okay, And why were they being held back? So that those that believe could receive the seal of God and they would be protected from all of this. Um, so the first interlude mentions four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back four winds. There in Revelation 7 verse 1. And then here in the passage we're looking at in Revelation 9, the sixth trumpet also mentions four angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates. And many interpreters understand both references uh, to be good angels, God's agents of judgment, tasked with restraining evil. However, he says more scholars interpret the first group there in Revelation 7 as good angels, and this group in Revelation 9 as demonic angels who were bound and restrained from doing anything evil until the appointed time. Okay, uh, Thus, the four angels of Revelation 9, 14 have more in common with the four winds that are mentioned in Revelation 7, 1 than with the angels that release the winds. So I just thought that was interesting. Now, about this hour, day, month, and year, this is an expression that basically pinpoints the exact moment in time when God does this, when He allows it to happen, okay? I mean, think about it. If you're trying to talk about when did that happen, was that the year the tornado came? No, it was, it was before that. You know, when we're talking, we're, we're sharing a story with somebody, we kind of have a marker in our mind of when something happened. Here, He's saying hour, day, month, and year. We're talking very precise. There is an appointed time when the events of the sixth trumpet will happen, and I'm just here to tell you that only God knows, okay? <laughs> I know that I, I sure don't. Uh, the, uh, this phrase, this phrase, hour, day, month, and year, this is the only time this particular phrase, these four units of time, are mentioned in, in Revelation, right here at the sixth trumpet. So that definitely is significant. Um, the point of specifying down to the hour of the time when this is going to happen, uh, I love what Bill says about this. The point of this is to emphasize that all events of history, whatever Satan's involvement is, are under the ultimate authority of God. In other words, God's in charge, okay? And he knows exactly when this is going to happen and how it's going to go down. He's in complete control. And that, you know, gives me comfort. So we've looked at the altar. We've looked at the angels. Now let's see what happens next. So these angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. And then it gives us a description of mounted troops. There in verse 16. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. Now, that might look a little bit different in your Bible compared to mine. Um, modern translations try to put it in our vernacular so we can go, oh man, that's a lot, right? 200 million, wow. Uh, other translations take the, um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, they take the vernacular in which it was communicated then. I think uh, I've got some different ones here. Like the, the NIV says it was twice 10,000. Ten, it was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And uh, the King James says it was 200,000 thousand. Okay? Um, and then the uh, English Standard says twice 10,000 times 10,000. Uh, I never was good at math, Herman, but when you get it all said and done, it's about 200 million. That is a lot, right? Well, let's, let's keep reading. So he says the number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. Now, you've noted, I hope you remember this pattern as we've been going through Revelation, particularly when we got in chapters 4 and 5, and now here we are in chapter 9. He'll have a vision, he will see something, and then he will hear something. Uh, or he will hear something, and then he'll see something. And you, you hear one thing, you expect something else, and then you see it and go, oh, well, that's not what I thought, right? And so... Here he is having this vision, number amounted troops, 200 million. He says, I heard their number. And then he says, this is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. Now, this is a very vivid imagination, but this is what he wrote. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. And a third of the human race was killed by these three plagues. Fire, smoke, and sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. So we have these horses... But they don't look like any horses I've ever seen. Their heads look like lions, and their tails look like snakes or serpents. Um, I know we've got a lot of great horses in Kentucky, but I don't think anybody's seen one like that, do you? And if they did, I think they'd be running real quick. Well, that is what he describes here. Notice there's a lot of symbolism uh, in Revelation. Uh, again, Kukendall says, an issue for this passage is the identity of the soldiers. Who are these riders on these horses, these mounted troops, these 200 million people? Who, who are they? He says many understand them as human, but more interpreters, however, lean toward demonic armies. And then he quotes Charles Ryrie, as offering the best solution when Charles Ryrie said this army might be composed of humans or demons or demon-possessed humans. Just leave all the options, right? Because I don't really know. Thus, the number of cavalry mentioned in the sixth trumpet must not be whittled down to only 200 million. He says the symbolism here, it's an apocalyptic number. It's not an exact number. Its intent is not... Kind of like when Jesus told Peter about, you know, forgiving somebody seven times 70. And the literal people want to say, well, that means 490 times. So I'm going to keep a record of every time Humran aggravates me. And after 490, he's done. 
I don't think that's what Jesus meant, okay? Yeah, that's right, that's right. But here's what he's saying in this quote. He says the intent with this huge number, okay, thousands of thousands, twice, whatever, 200 million, whatever, and he says the intent is to show the impossibility and the futility of resistance. And I could agree with that. I mean, when the sixth trumpet ha- uh, is released and a third of the human race is killed by these mysterious uh, um, troops on horses like I've never seen before, and it's 200 million of them, and it's worldwide, oh my gosh. I mean, as, as they would say where I grew up, you can't stir that with a stick, right? I mean, you're talking about being blanketed. And so that's the idea. Okay, just kind of stick with the big idea here because uh, we can get lost in details real quick. Um, here's what Herschel Hobbes, I love Herschel Hobbes. Here's what he says. He says, the power of these horses, he says, the power of these horses was not only in their mouths, but in their tails, which were like snakes. Now, obviously, no such animal exists. They are symbolic of the terrible, destructive nature of these forces, which were loosed at the Euphrates River, and by these three plagues, fire, smoke, and brimstone, a third of the human race was killed. And he says, again, partial judgment is seen. Okay? Partial judgment. Uh, When you read, we've been reading so far, um, the, uh, the seals, and now the trumpets, and it'll say a third. Like, for instance, there in Revelation 8, Verse 7, the first trumpet, a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees burned up, okay? And then you get to the second trumpet in Revelation uh, 8, a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, a third of the ships were destroyed, and it just goes on and on. You know, the third trumpet, a third of the rivers and the springs of water, um, you know, became wormwood, and... uh, the, the fourth trumpet, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. You get the idea. In other words, as you go through these trumpet judgments, a lot of things happen. It's a third of this and a third of that and a third of this and a third of that. And the mathematicians in the room were going, hmm, hmm, hmm. It's partial judgment, okay? It's partial judgment. When you get to the next series of seven, the seven bowls, it's going to be complete judgment, okay? So the trumpets for all practical purposes, serve as warnings. They get your attention, okay? Trumpets, they warn us, and you see the partial judgment to say, hey, wake up. He's coming. God's going to move. God is going to judge sin. He is going to judge the world. Hey, wake up. Wake up, everybody. It's going to happen. That's the point I want you to get. And that gets us to the most important part. You see, as we read this passage about the sixth trumpet, note what we've covered. And it may not be to your satisfaction, but I'll be honest with you, the more I study this, it's not to my satisfaction. Uh, Because even though we can know some things, there's so much I don't know. It's like, wow, God, I, I love this picture book, Revelation. You're painting pictures to communicate these wonderful truths. But... And I get the big idea, you know, I mean, God's in control and he's going to judge sin. I get the big idea, but what about that weird looking horse over there? What does that mean, you know? Uh, but uh, we've talked about the golden altar. We've talked about the four angels. We've talked about these mounted troops. And now this is the most important part of all. 
the response of unbelievers. Now, I'll remind you of what I alluded to earlier, um, and that is after the sixth seal in Revelation 6, there in Revelation 7, at that point forward, the activity of God is paused until His servants are sealed with the living God. Because from that point forward, as God begins to unleash things in the world, He distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked. He always has, and He always will. And so now these things that are happening are affecting the people of the earth, which is a euphemism for unbelievers. And so now the last part of our outline tonight is the response of unbelievers. Now look, if you will, in Revelation 9, verse 20. The rest of the people, remember there was a third of the human race killed by this plague of uh, fire and smoke and brimstone. And oh, I almost forgot. Where have we heard of fire, smoke, and brimstone before? Can you think of a big event that happened in the Old Testament where God judged a certain people at a certain place, and there was fire, smoke, and brimstone. Well, I heard it. What? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's it. The, the, there was smoke, there was fire, and then there was brimstone that fell from heaven. Yes. So, so get that in your mind. Think, think of what it would have been like for Abraham to look out across that plain the next morning after God had told him he'd take care of Lot, and he looks out across that plain to where Sodom and Gomorrah is, basically off the map, right? And now we fast forward to whenever this is going to happen someday, the sixth trumpet, da, 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 third of the human race, dead, gone. And it's due to the plagues of fire, Smoke and brimstone. Yeah, so keep that in mind. Well, let's look. Verse 20, the rest of the people, that means the two-thirds that are still alive on earth, the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Not once, but twice. He says they did not repent. You know what concerns me as I read Revelation is um, this is proof that as we progress toward the end, that there is no more neutral ground. How do I say this? Let me see if I can say it this way. Has anybody noticed, I'm, I'm just making observations about our culture, so bear with me for a minute. Has anybody noticed that in our culture now, we are more divided than ever. You have to pick a side. And depending on which side you're on, depends on how you're treated. 
there is very little middle ground anymore. You don't hear anybody talk about being a moderate. I think we're headed there because when you read these, this description of these events in the sixth trumpet, uh, all of these amazing things happen on earth and people don't get a clue. They don't go, well, let's see, God's still in control of the weather, you know, and God's still in control of this. So if all this crazy stuff happens, maybe he's trying to get my attention. Maybe I need to look up. Maybe I need to cry out to God. Maybe I need to look in the mirror and make some changes, some adjustments to my life. No, worldwide amazing things that have never happened begin to happen. And what happens? They did not repent. And he says it twice. Now I know we've all had someone in our lives that we cared about, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, and we, we know what their real problem in life is. They don't know Jesus. And we start praying for them. And we're like, man, Lord, just please save them. And you, you love them. You, you try to share some of God's love and truth, you know, when those moments are there, you know, those open door moments where you just, there it is. And you, you just pray for them. And then when you get frustrated because you see them getting further away from God and you see their heart getting even more hardened toward the things of God, I don't know if you've done this. I know I've done this many times. You begin to go, God, what's it going to take to get their attention? And that thought runs through my mind when I read this because I think in the last days it's going to get to the point to where people keep saying no. They keep hardening their heart toward God. And no matter how tough it gets out there, like water off a duck's, duck's back, you know? And so they are not repentant. Um, Dennis Johnson, here's a quote. The sixth trumpet previews an increase of satanic deception that precipitates growing violence, death, and despair. Such a crumbling of law, order, and safety should, say, should shake idolaters' confidence in the works of their hands and cure their desire to worship demons in the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, nor walk. Well, the key word in his quote is all of these things that are crumbling around them should shake them. Should. But it doesn't. And that's what's sad and quite frankly scary all at the same time. One more Hobbes quote, Herschel Hobbes. He says, God's judgment was designed not only to vindicate... Let me... I butchered that. Hang on. God's judgment was designed not only to vindicate His people, but also to induce evil men to repent and turn to Him. But despite all of the suffering brought about by these six judgments, and He says six because we're now on trumpet number six. Here's your sign, right? Six trumpets. Despite all of the suffering brought about by these six judgments, those who survived did not repent. And that's a good point. Go back and read the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth trumpets and all the things that happen. 
stack that up, pile that up, and now you see a third of humanity die, smoke, fire, and brimstone, and you still refuse to repent? Man, that's why, in my opinion, the book of Hebrews tells us to beware of the deceitfulness of sin. Why? Because sin makes us deceive ourselves. And sin is what hardens our heart toward the living God. And that's why sin, regardless of what sin it is, okay, we could talk all day about this sin, that sin, is that one worse than this? Let's, let's, let's just cut through all that for a minute. Sin, anything against God, enables us to deceive ourselves, okay? And sin, whatever it is, hardens our heart toward God. Now, is that worth it? No. But that's where a lot of people in the world are. And that's, that's, just, that's just where they are. So let me give you some handles here. As I was meditating on this, I wanted to give you three quick lessons. I'm going to do this real fast and then I'll be done. But I wanted to give you three lessons, just a kind of a meditation on the sixth trumpet and all the things that we describe when it happens. Uh, one lesson I think we need to learn as followers of Christ, we ought to be crying out to God for justice. Now, you know, I think we all can get caught up in the drama of the news, the drama of what's going on in our country. We can all have an opinion about it. But at the end of the day, as a child of God, whenever we see wrong, whenever we see injustice, whenever we see sin, we ought to cry out to God because of it. And I think that's something that I'm still learning to do. Because, you know, it's hard to live by faith when we're so used to living by sight. You know what? I mean, each and every day we wake up, these eyes see things, these ears hear things. I, we all experience things, and man, the emotions get stirred real quick. But the bottom line is, you and I need to cry out to God for justice because He is the only, okay, He is the only just judge, according to the Bible. And uh, one day when we stand before God, there will be payday. And uh, every person will have to give an account to God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is God. And there won't be any arguing. There won't be any rebuttal. There certainly won't be any drama uh, on that day because He'll be in control. So we ought to be crying out to God for justice. Despite all the symbolism, despite all of these things that sound weird when we read it and we're trying to talk about it and describe it and understand it, please don't miss the obvious, okay? And the obvious is, when you go back at those previous verses I read, chapters 5, 6, and 8, and whatever that I, read, that I mentioned earlier, at a certain point in Revelation, the activity from God that you see on earth is in response to the prayers of His people. Don't, don't miss that. So when you and I cry out to God, I had someone tell me years ago, uh, Brother Jim, and it makes sense to me, prayer never dies. 
Think about that. Now, how can I say that prayer never dies? Because prayer is talking to God, right? Does God ever die? No. I mean, yes, He sent Jesus, but He died once, right? And He rose from the dead, and He lives what? Forevermore. He'll never die again. So when we pray, we're talking to God, and God never dies, and God never forgets. Have you ever, you know, talked to someone before you asked them, hey, will you remember to, you know, next week to do this for me, or I need you to do this, or I need you to do that? Sure, I'll take care of it. And then next week comes, and something unexpected happened in their, in their world, and they didn't do it, and you're like, oh, right? We've all, we've been there, done that. We've probably been on both sides of that, right? What I'm trying to say is that never happens with God. So when I say that prayer never dies, it doesn't. When we pray to God and we, we, we talk to Him, and, we're, and, and I'm not talking about petty cake prayers. I'm not talking about me, me, me. I'm not talking about selfish prayers. I'm talking about when we, when we pray like the Bible teaches us to pray, when we, when we look at the uh, Lord's Prayer, the, the model prayer that we are to learn how to pray, when we're praying that His name will be you know, holy, when we're praying that His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, when, when we pray that His kingdom will come, okay? when we pray that God's work and will will be done, when we pray according to God's agenda, those prayers never die, okay? And God hears those prayers. And God remembers those prayers. And according to the imagery there in Scripture, when the time comes, all those prayers are packed together off of that altar. And that angel takes that censer and just hurls it to the earth and bang! All of a sudden, God's power happens because of His people's prayers. So the big lesson here is we ought to be crying out to God for justice. And one of these days, that prayer, it will be answered. A second thing that I realized as I meditated on this passage is as followers of Christ, we must trust God's timing to answer our prayers. Kind of the same thing, but I wanted to emphasize that. We have to trust God's timing to answer our prayers. If you remember the souls of those that were slaughtered for the word of God and their testimony that were there below the altar in Revelation 6, 9, and 10, they were crying out to God then. They were probably crying out to earth when they saw things happening. And now they're in heaven with God and they're still crying out to God. And you know what they're saying? How much longer? How much longer? Have you ever wanted to throw up your hands? You're seeing everything going on in the world and you're like, God, I know you got to be coming back soon, but can it happen today? How much longer? I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can take anymore. I don't know if I really want to see anymore, you know, if it's going to get this bad, right? <clears throat> well, we have to trust God's timing to answer our prayers. This sixth trumpet, it's going to happen when it's supposed to happen. Uh, what did it say? It said it'll happen at the very hour, day, month, and year. And nothing's going to change that. And then the third thing that I noticed as I reflected on this passage, as followers of Christ, we must be aware of the sinfulness of sin 
and the hardness of people's hearts. And that's where I want to leave this. Remember that C.S. Lewis quote. You know, God shouts to us in our pains. Here is a wicked world that's turned their back on God. And the trumpets begin to blow. That means the alarm bells are going off. And things that we can't explain start happening. A third of this around the world, and a third of that, and a third of this, and a third of the sun, and the moon, and the heavens, and the stars, and and a third of the water, and a third of this, and a third of the human race dies. I bet when all that happens, people are going to go, what in the world is happening? And the real question is, what should I be doing? And the answer is, I need to repent. Because God's saying, it's almost time's up. And the saddest part of this story is verse 20 and 21. The rest of the people who weren't killed by the plagues did not repent of their works. They just didn't do it. And that's why I want to end this on you and I have to be aware and beware of the sinfulness of sin and the hardness of people's hearts. There's an old story I heard years ago. A man was walking down the road and he saw an old snake. It was wintertime. And he saw that snake and that snake said, Sir, can you please put me in your coat? I'm about to freeze to death here. And he says, I'm not going to do that. You're a snake. He goes, you don't have anything to worry about. I just need to get some, some, something warm around me or I'm going to die. And after a little bit of dialogue back and forth, he finally had pity on this poor creature and he took the snake and put him in his coat. He walked down the road and over the course of time, that, snow, that snake began to get real warm. And finally, he stuck his head out and he bit that guy. And as the guy was laying there dying, he says, I thought you said that you wouldn't hurt me if I helped you. He says, you know I'm a snake. That's what sin's like. Sin is so deceptive. The devil is so deceptive. And quite frankly, you know, we can get excited about what does the Bible say about end times and what do you believe about this and what do you think about that? Do you think this is going to happen here, here, da-da-da-da? Hold up. Step back. Take a deep breath. Go to Matthew 24. And don't, don't turn there, but I'm just saying this just for you to know. Go to Matthew 24 sometime. Read the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples when they point blank said, what's the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? And he goes into a long conversation about all that. One of the first, very first things he mentions, watch out that no one deceives you. Watch out that no one deceives you. One of the, one of the things that's going to permeate the, uh, the climate And the environment of the last days leading up to the second coming of Christ is going to be a lot of deception. And we need to be aware of that because all of us, me including, can be deceived so easily. And one of the ways we can be deceived so easily is because of sin. Sin is very deceitful. And uh, sin will take you further than you want to go cost you more than you want to pay and let you stay somewhere longer than you want to stay. So 
Always be aware of the sinfulness of sin and the hardness of people's hearts. With all that said, tonight I want to encourage you to make a decision to trust and follow Jesus. Um, we haven't got to the second, the seventh, excuse me. There's one more trumpet, and we won't get to it next week because John, he's kind of frustrating. Just when he gets on a roll, one, two, three, four, five, six, he stops and says, ah, let's take a break, let me talk about something, then I'll get you to number seven. And that's what we're going to do next week. We, he takes a break, he tells you something else, and then eventually he gets to the seventh trumpet. And I can't wait to get to the seventh trumpet, but that's at the end of chapter 11, and we got to go through chapter 10 first. So anyway, I encourage you to make a personal decision to trust and follow Jesus because you and I, we need to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Lord, I want to thank you for this time and your word. I pray, Father, that as we look around this old world, trying to make sense of the things we see. I pray, Lord, that you would draw our hearts and our minds back to you and back to your word. And more than that, Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves, that we would turn from our sin, that you might forgive us and that you might heal us and heal our land. Father, I pray that as we look forward to that day when you return, Help us to realize, Lord, that the world's going to go through a whole lot of things. And Lord, it's my prayer that they will repent. But it says here they won't. And Lord, that makes me sad. It just, Lord, it helps me to remember what your word says. Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. So Lord, today, if we hear your voice, may we not harden your heart. May we humble ourselves and trust and follow you before it's too late. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.